Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Welcome to Democracy Sausage Second Serve. I've been calling this Democracy Sausage Extra, which is apparently not ideal for branding, I've been told. So Second Serve it is. This week it's a chance to talk to a Democracy Sausage regular, the quietly spoken but powerfully penned historian, author, columnist, and general public intellectual Professor Frank Bongiorno. Welcome, Frank. Thanks, Mark. Now, you've been reading A Bigger Picture, Malcolm Turnbull's long-awaited memoir, and I've read your brilliant, compelling review on the Inside Story site. Can I just recommend that to listeners while I'm here? It's uh, definitely worth a read. Let's look at your conclusions, Frank. In broad terms, how do you rate this effort by Malcolm Turnbull? Well, it's an often an engaging book. It's a very long one. Um, and in some ways, you know, criticising uh, a prime ministerial memoir for blowing, you know, one's own trumpet is, uh, you know, sort of a bit like complaining about water being wet. It's kind of almost embedded in the, <laughs> it's sort of embedded in the genre in a way. Um, but yeah, look, I, I did find it. Um, at times a, a somewhat evasive memoir, and I, I'm sure that people who know much more about uh, Turnbull's life and career would be able to find other evasions too. But certainly even on a, a pretty superficial reading of, you know, his account of his time as Prime Minister, I mean, it, it did seem to me that a lot of complications were being brushed over. I mean, obviously a lot of the media coverage of it has been very much focused on, you know, the um, uh, sniping, I guess, at his former colleagues, those that he regards as as having betrayed him, um, his complaints about the Murdoch media, um, all of which uh, may well be uh, justified. But, um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I think it's, it's a book that's defined um, by the kinds of things it doesn't say as much as the kinds of things that it actually does. Yes, uh, I noticed that you made two kind of uh, in in your review. You made two kind of upfront general observations. One, you said it's it's not a mellow account like perhaps what we've seen from prime ministers going back away and thinking right back to Robert Menzies, for example. It's not that kind of mellow account. It's a much more kind of spirited defence of his uh, prime ministership and his his time in politics. And the other thing you say is that. It doesn't really take us too much further in kind of unraveling the puzzle that is Malcolm Turnbull. Can you speak to those two points? Yeah, um, I, I think that it's um, very much a modern 
prime ministerial memoir in the sense that, you know, there are, I think, some resemblances to the tone and approach of, say, the Hawke memoirs, which was published back in 1994. Uh, you know, obviously, Bob Hawke used uh, that opportunity to uh, continue and to extend his quarrel with with Paul Keating. Um, and you know, those memoirs were very much about Hawke um, defending the legacy of his government, uh, explaining, you know, its achievements in the broader context of, of modern Australia. Um, it, it was very much self-promotion at a time when, you know, Hawke's reputation was probably lower uh, than it is today as as a prime minister. You know, that was coming really at the end of a recession. And so there was a real assertiveness, I guess, about his record as prime minister. Um, and in a sense, what, what um, Malcolm Turnbull's doing here is very much in, in a similar kind of spirit. But, you know, as I say in the review, I think it also has elements of the Latham Diaries from 2005. Um, you know, there's some pretty uh, sensational uh, uh um, you know, pretty excoriating stuff about his former colleagues, about obviously t- uh, Tony Abbott, but, you know, also, um, I mean, some of the, 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 the roughest stuff in it really is about Matthias Cormann. Um, uh, Scott Morrison doesn't come out of it too well. Um, you know, so I think in, in that sense, um, you know, in its kind of revelatory type of uh, mode, it, it, it does have some resemblances to the Latham Diaries. It's a less bitter work than the Latham Diaries because I think, you know, the 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 Latham Diaries. Back well, there's a relief. It is a relief. Uh, the Latham Diaries, you know, were also a kind of argument about why politics is a waste of time, and that's certainly not Malcolm Turnbull's position. I think he sees the public life and he sees the political life as actually um, virtuous and 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 worthwhile. But, you know, he also sees them as, as very difficult to pursue for someone of his particular um, uh, approach, someone of his particular, I guess, um, you know, a, a political views in the in a current climate of populism and, and aggressive right-wing media and, and all the rest of it. Um, and, Mark, your second question was about... Um, uh, the second question was about uh, the, just the puzzle of Malcolm yeah. Turnbull, I suppose. You know, this, this, because uh, he is such an enigmatic figure in a way. We think we know him all the time. We, we voters thought they knew him when they, they uh, acquired him, if I can put it like that, as prime minister in 2015. But it turned out they didn't really know him. Yeah. I mean, again, there is a kind of parallel with Hawke in the sense that Malcolm had been a part of public life in Australia for decades uh, before he became prime minister. I mean, he's about the same age as Hawke was when, when, uh, 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 well, sorry, Hawke sort of entered parliament and became prime minister pretty quickly. In Turnbull's case, he entered parliament at the age of about 50 and, of course, becomes prime minister, uh, you know, some, around a decade uh, later. Um, and, you know, but th- there are parallels, I think, between the two because, you know, most Australian people thought they knew Hawke very well, uh, you know, by the time he entered Parliament because they- they'd sort of had him with them for decades. Um, that That's true of Turnbull up to a point, but I think, you know, there is something more enigmatic about about Turnbull. Um, I mean, there there are some clues in the book to that. I mean, the early part of the book deals with his family background, with his early life. It's, it's a, in some ways, you know, a, a very tragic, um, childhood. I mean, although he doesn't really present it in tragic terms, uh, his mother was, um, a, a writer, um, for radio, um, and then, 
uh, actually became a very um, uh, respected um, literary studies academic. Her name was Coral Lansbury. Um, but she basically leaves the family home um, uh, when Malcolm's about 10 and uh, he's brought up by his his father, who, as he explains, is in some ways a little bit more like an older brother. I mean, obviously the the parents were were, were very ill matched, um, and you know, so I sometimes sensed in in the book that um, you know, without getting too Freudian about it all, the the, the absence of of the mother is something that that often haunts the book. I think in a, in a, in a lot of ways. Um, my sense uh, is, you know, that he, as you'd expect, he was obviously very wounded by that particular experience, and there are, uh, are lines in the book that suggest as much. But it's certainly not something he dwells on. Um, that's clearly not what he wants to do in this book. And in some ways, I think that's a pity because I think we would have got a deeper insight into into Turnbull if he'd been more willing to talk about. Um, you know, his childhood and perhaps, you know, the earlier part of his life and career, um, all of that's dealt with, you know, in, in um, I wouldn't say uh, in brief, but it, it's certainly um, not dealt with in enormous detail. And, you know, in some ways, I think that that is a pity. We get blow by blow accounts of often, I think, you know, um, frankly, quite trivial uh, aspects of his prime ministership. Um, you know, in some ways, I think it would probably have been a better book if we'd had a little bit more on his on his upbringing and early life. It's interesting you use that term "wounded" uh, in terms of uh, describing the, the uh, you know the effective loss of of having a mother around. Um, his his career is, in some ways, defined by another great wounding, which we'll come back to. But um, just on this question of the overall structure of the book. Nicholas Whitlam, with whom he worked at one stage in a merchant banking capacity, uh, has described it as deeply evasive, and and you've made this point as well that um, it's kind of telling for for what it doesn't say. Is there? Uh, can we perhaps understand that a bit just simply because that's a kind of a human need to tell one story? I mean, being a prime minister must be an extraordinary experience that none of us. Will, will ever ever go through where you are the subject of you know thousands of column inches every week uh, and, and and time on broadcast you're discussed everywhere all the time and there's a limit to how much of the story of your side of the story you can get across at any time the inside story the perspective that you have so perhaps there's a sense that this book is him putting his case um, and, and we need to be understanding of that. Oh, I think we do. And that's the purpose, um, I think, a political memoir, really. It, it, it provides a unique opportunity for um, a politician, or in this case, a retired politician, to give their side of the story, to represent themselves in terms that are, that they're comfortable with, um, that, that, you know, aren't mediated by, they're not mediated by staffers, they're not mediated by the media, um, the mass media, um, uh, the, the claims to authority, I think, of this kind of text, the autobiography, uh, the memoir, th- those claims come out of this sense that it is somehow unvarnished, that it's somehow raw. And the genre and, and those who practice it deserve respect for that because, it, 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 you know, I think it is of value to historians to have this. But I think we also need to perhaps... Uh, have a sceptical eye too, because this is political performance as well. In some ways, it's it's as staged as uh, an election speech. It's it's as staged, 
you know, as uh, an appearance at a party conference. I mean, it, this is still an example. Or, or indeed, or in, sorry to interrupt you, Frank, but or indeed it's a stage as an appearance for perhaps in front of a jury. You make the point that as a reader you had the sensation of being a juror being subjected to the oratory of a of a skilled arguer of a, of a you know like a courtroom performance and and I think that's fascinating because and and I guess for for full disclosure I was a journalist working in the press gallery covering uh, politics for his entire period in Parliament and you know rise as opposition leader and then uh, eventually again a reprise as uh, as prime minister uh, so I charted this as well but um, there was was quite a lot of commentary early on even when Malcolm Turnbull was a minister in John Howard's cabinet, that he addressed the dispatch box like he was addressing a court, that there was, there was a bit too much of the courtroom performer in his, in his approach, um, rather than the politician. Now, perhaps, as you say, that is a function of his background and also of the fact that, and we shouldn't dismiss this as a, as a negative, the fact that he didn't enter uh, parliamentary politics until he was 50, as you said before. We ought to see perhaps more of that, people arriving in the legislature with with a life behind them rather than making their life entirely within the parliament. But it's a, it's a, I think it's a really interesting symmetry and you, you did make that observation that you had that sensation as a reader that you were sort of sitting in a jury hearing this um, very kind of particularized argument to drive, you know, draw, draw you to a particular conclusion. Yeah, I think that's, that's true, Mark, that it, it, I mean, he does often come across in the book a little bit like a, a barrister, um, uh, and of course he has practiced as such. Um, you know, his his training was was in law, um, although he didn't really pursue a career uh, as a barrister. Um, he did uh, other things, um, but that that sense of him as a very skilled advocate who's able to put uh, a particular case, who doesn't make too many concessions to the other side, I think is very strong. The, the problem, I suppose, with that approach, though, in, in a memoir is I think readers are looking for introspection as well. They're looking for, uh, you know, a case about the National Broadband Network um, that might be the case for his own performance as communications minister. That's what you'd expect, but which is, you know, actually willing to make some kind of concession to critics or which is willing to at least, uh, you know, offer the possibility that mistakes might have been made along the way. And the, I suppose that the difficulty I increasingly had with the book around its treatment of some of these issues, the NBN is one, uh, another is, is, uh, the marriage equality issue is that, you know, he had, uh, he has, um, a need, I think, in, in the book to, to place himself at the center of, of, you know, uh, all of these events. And if you like to claim them as a part of the, the legacy and record of his government. Um, and, you know, with something like, uh, same sex marriage, I mean, that's really problematic to me. I mean, another way of reading the way in which, you know, that issue uh, was dealt with in Australian politics was that it, you know, in some ways it revealed the, the limitations and failings of both of the major parties and, uh, you know, the, the role played by activists over more than a decade, including in the campaign itself, uh, you know, seems rather important to me. But uh, for Malcolm, it becomes really just another part of um, you know, his government of, of a, a rather elite approach, I think, to understanding how politics 
happens, you know, that it's essentially the doings of, of people with um, power and judgment um, rather than something that actually depends fundamentally on, you know, what uh, is actually happening out there in the r- real world, on the street, uh, on uh, in the media, in, in you know, halls and all, all the places where politics actually happens in, in real life. And um, the kind of unrelenting and, and, and remorseless nature, I think, of, of, of his approach to some of these issues, uh, in the end, I think, probably does undermine its, its effectiveness as a memoir. We're going to take a break in just a moment, but before we do, and I want to come back to uh, obviously issues like uh, the handling of the same-sex marriage uh, um, push and other things, but um, just sticking with this sort of courtroom barrister aspect of of Malcolm Turnbull's memoir, um, I wonder if you see uh, any linkages here with you know some of the other things he did before entering politics. Um, where he was a paid advocate, uh, for example, uh, uh, working for Kerry Packer. Um, and I wonder if you see any uh, pattern in in Malcolm Turnbull's values being perhaps a bit more fungible than he's prepared to let on, that, he, that he's in fact like a barrister uh, almost with issues, even as a politician, that we think he's strongly committed to some things, but he turns out to uh, be prepared to reprioritise in whatever is he sees as the best interests of his advancement. Yeah, I mean, I, I tried to avoid um, presenting him as a kind of a mere opportunist in in the book because I, I don't think he is. I mean, I think he does have, uh, you know, he, he he does have values, obviously, and he has values that he's tried to pursue in public life. And if you take, you know, his defence of of Kerry Packer against the the uh, material coming out of the Costigan Royal Commission in in uh, uh, the 1980s, um, uh, about 1984, um, which accused Packer um, of a range of rather implausible, uh, unlikely crimes, it has to be said. And I think that, you know, Turnbull genuinely thought that this was, uh, a, 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 you know, that, that, that it was a civil liberties issue, that um, it, you know, um, ha- had effectively, um, uh, you know, undermined Packer's reputation in a way that wasn't founded in evidence. Uh, the due process hadn't been followed. I mean, it was based essentially on leaks coming out of, of that Royal Commission. So I think he, he genuinely believed that. And, um, you know, his, his, um, advocacy on behalf of Packer, you know, reflected, um, to some extent the depth of his own, uh, feelings about that. Um, you know, I guess it's it's almost a part of the skill of an advocate of that kind to put aside ambiguity, isn't it? And in, in Packer's case, um, you know, th- there were uh, uh, well-founded suspicions, I think, that he was avoiding tax. Uh, a royal commission which comes across an individual such as Packer who's storing millions of dollars in his office safe uh, at a time when, you know, it, it's dealing with bottom of the harbour tax evasion, um, you can kind of see why the Royal Commission might have been interested in him. And, and you know, Turnbull's able to put that kind of ambiguity aside, that kind of perspective um, that, you know, in, in a sense is an, a, an exercise in empathy. It's your capacity to, to think a, a, about and to consider how a situation might look from another perspective, whereas I think Turnbull, the advocate, uh, essentially places that on the margin so that he can make his case as forcefully as he possibly can. I think there is 
a strong element of that right through the book, you know, when he's defending his record as as prime minister, you know, the ambiguities about the kind of NBN that we've we've ended up with are put aside so that he can prosecute the case for why this is, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. But do you think he was a victim of his own kind of political incongruity, like the sense that voters had that a number of his positions were not consistent with the the main positions adopted by the the Liberal Party. Um, you've mentioned uh, same sex marriage. There was, of course, his his position on on climate change, the emissions tra- his support for emissions trading. Uh, obviously, he was very well known for his support for the Republic. These are, are hardly kind of foundation values of the Liberal Party. Um, and so, do you think he was always kind of batting against uh, the odds, really, in trying to present as a as a as a congruent political product in the electoral marketplace when he had those positions? Yes, I suppose one interpretation of of Turnbull is that he he might have joined the wrong party, and and he does deal with that uh, in in the book actually, um, uh, because you know the the early part of the book when he's making his career in the nineteen seventies and 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 uh, early 80s, you know, so many of his associations are really with Labor Party figures. You know, there's Bob Carr, he goes into business with Neville Rann. Um, it becomes possible, I think, as you're reading this, to think of this as someone who, you know, could well have ended up on the, you know, the right wing of the New South Wales Labor Party and and perhaps ended up at some point as a Labor Prime Minister. And he deals with that basically. I think he might have found the right wing of the New South Wales Labor Party a bit conservative on uh, some of those questions, frankly. I he mean, that, that's, yeah. that's you know, kind of interesting point about him is that uh, he was he was to the left of at least the, the Catholic right of the Labor Party. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, certainly on, on some social moral issues, he would have found himself well to the left of figures in the New South Wales Labor right. Um or at least he said he was. I mean, <laughs> it, you know, that's actually some of the criticism, isn't it? I mean, one's reminded of that Groucho Marx saying, uh, these are my values. If you don't like them, I have others. others. Yes. <laughs> it's probably not quite as – it's not quite <laughs> – it's probably not yeah, – um, yeah. Let's take a quick break and uh, we'll come back and continue talking about uh, Malcolm Turnbull's uh, memoir. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. I'm talking with Frank Bongiorno, who's written a uh, fabulous, uh, if somewhat uh, challenging, um, review of Malcolm Turnbull's memoir, A Bigger Picture. Now, Frank, you called your, uh, your essay The Prince, 
And you note that young Malcolm wrote an essay early on in his life on Cosimo de Medici. Uh, so t- t- talk us through that. I mean, he's suggesting that, that Turnbull was a, a kind of a Machiavellian figure always, Is that, that, that he was always fascinated with the kind of manoeuvrings and deceptions of politics? No, it came less out of a sense of wanting to identify him with Machiavelli, although, you know, I think that is obviously an element of Turnbull. How could it not be? He's a highly successful politician. Um, it was more a, a sense that I think that kind of model of a, almost an Italian Renaissance merchant statesman um, fits Turnbull rather well. Um, so, you know, it caught my eye when I saw that early in the book. Um, you know, this is uh, a Republican uh He's, he's a, a, a businessman, indeed a banker in, in politics. Uh, you know, so many of those uh, uh, characteristics and features that we associate with, you know, kind of the, the first among equals of the Italian city-state, such as, you know, Cosimo de' Medici or one could, could look at various others as, as well, seem to fit Turnbull rather well. As I said, right, right down to having, you know, kind of the estate outside the city walls, although in his case a little bit further afield, he has farms in the the upper hunter um but it, it, it's it seems to me that you know quite a number of of aspects of the ways in which he operates as a politician reminded me of you know my study all those years ago of renaissance florence for instance and and you know the the kind of image and perhaps self-image too of of you know a, a, um, an italian kind of merchant statesman and i've long felt that about Turnbull. It wasn't something that kind of, um, you know, I necessarily drew from the pages of this memoir, but it did confirm for me that sort of image. Now, whether it's a self-image, I don't know. Um, that's that's something uh, that you could only speculate about. But it, it's certainly something that I think, um, you know, comes out of the kind of image that he wants to portray of himself as a as a politician. There are a number of very seminal moments in Malcolm Turnbull's career and and his public career, and one of them obviously was the 1999 referendum on the Republic. Uh, he had led the Australian Republican movement. He was the face of that uh, campaign. It was, of course, a spectacular and and I think very expensive failure, a flop. Uh, I think it's uh, the case that he donated a considerable amount of his own money to that campaign, perhaps as much as $5 million. Um, and it's it's interesting because it's one of those issues, we've mentioned same-sex marriage before, it's one of those issues uh, on which uh, Turnbull later, uh, you know, shows great timidity or, or reluctance to pursue, even though it's a core value. You You made the point before, Frank, about... Turnbull being one of those very known figures before he came to Parliament, much like Bob Hawke. Um, I wonder if there there isn't an interesting kind of inverse parallel here, if there is such a thing as an inverse parallel, uh, and that is that Hawke kind of got better. I mean, he was known as a a kind of, you know, an effective public speaker and operator, but also as a larrikin, a drinker, a womaniser, and he got better as Prime Minister in terms of uh, taming those aspects of his character and being a very diligent Prime Minister. I wonder whether there was a sense that the things that people knew Malcolm Turnbull for, uh, those things I mentioned, same-sex marriage, uh, emissions trading, uh, the Republic, they were the things people kind of liked him for and yet later on um, when he becomes Prime Minister they are the things that he forsakes in order to get the job. Yeah, and that is, I think, one of the puzzles about his prime ministership that isn't cleared up in the book and I still don't fully understand uh, how or why it happened. Um, 
I mean, on the Republic, I think one can understand why, uh, you know, he'd kind of put that aside or perhaps put it in the too hard basket given the circumstances in which he came to office. I can see why that probably didn't appear the most uh, pressing thing that he needed to deal with in... It it wasn't the most pressing, sorry to interrupt, but it wasn't the most pressing thing, but it did present a rare historical moment, did it not, where we had a Prime Minister and an opposition leader in favour of that change. Now, that has not happened very often in, in the past and would have been a critical element towards forwarding that agenda. And yet he was not. He, he became an Elizabethan Republican, as he described it. Uh, you know, not while this current Queen is alive. Yeah, it became a bit cute, didn't it? I mean, the idea that that um, you know something that I was wholeheartedly devoted to twenty years ago, in which I you know put my heart and soul in. Uh, you know, in some ways, in which I built a, a, a reputation, public reputation on, uh, doesn't really matter. Uh, too much now or can be postponed until the Queen dies. It was always a pretty unconvincing argument, but it, it was surely part of a broader pattern and, and um, you know, the, the, the more significant issue was indeed the emissions trading scheme, um, but same-sex marriage I think, I think was important here too, that, that he was essentially willing to put them aside. I mean, we don't still don't know what was precisely in the coalition agreement uh, with the, the the national party, the nationals, because he doesn't tell us in the book. Uh, once again, it's implied what was in there, but we don't actually get the, the full contents of it. Uh, he clearly also had a right of his own party that he wanted to conciliate, um, and he, he's willing to put these kinds of issues aside, despite the fact they'd been so important to him. And the ETS, I think, you know, had been you know, defining for his career as a politician, you know, a parliamentarian uh, during his previous stint as leader. Um, He he held a lot of cards, I would have thought, before the 2016 election. I mean, surely he could have stared the National Party down. Uh, He Hmm. he could surely have stared down the right wing of his own party, that side of the election. His problem was he didn't and then went to the 2016 election very nearly lost it and, of course, was then in a position where he quite possibly could have been brought down on the floor of the House um, by renegades from his own party or from the Nationals. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the, the story's a different one, obviously, after the 2016 election, but it remains puzzling to me why he, he didn't uh, move in a rather different way before that election, that the the guess I come up with in the review is that he somehow imagined he'd be able to manoeuvre. I mean, he kind of he has an image of himself as a particularly nimble, adaptable man and 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 public figure. And my sense is he felt he'd be able to, if you like, manoeuvre around those kind of obstacles within his own party in the Nationals uh, to get eventually what he wanted and you know by his own account well, that's a, I think that's a that's a pretty I mean that's possibly true uh, but I think it's actually a a, a fairly favorable interpretation of it I think many people would take the view that uh, the, that it just didn't matter to him as much as he'd said it mattered to him that what actually mattered you remember Paul Keating's line that that uh, you know, Malcolm was a, a cherry on top of a compost heap. This was a typical Keating sort of uh, uh, colour in in describing, um, you know, the nature of the Liberal Party. But Keating also had the view that, that Turnbull's main agenda was really to be Prime Minister and it wasn't as important to him what he was going to use that power to do. 
And I wonder whether that that doesn't give us more of an explanation of his um, willingness to forsake some of these things, that it was all about getting the leadership. In the end, uh, it's hard to draw any other conclusion. Yeah, I mean, that, that's you know, the Occam's razor approach. It's the simplest explanation. Um, and, and I suppose a lot of people have misread my review because it's seen as somehow uh, extremely tough on Malcolm Turnbull, and I suppose it is in some ways, but at no stage do I ever present him as, an op- as, as a pure opportunist who, who simply wanted to become Prime Minister, had no agenda, had no purpose for his behind his power. Uh, I avoid those kinds of images. And I I think I'd stand by that. I, I, I think um, it, it, this was never simply about becoming Prime Minister. That was very important to him, clearly. Um, it's an ambition he clearly had, uh, you know, since he was a very young man, and it's an ambition he achieved. Um, but, I, I, yeah, look, I don't think it was entirely about opportunism. I, I, I think it was also um, a, about a very high opinion of his own ability, I think, to negotiate some pretty... Poor judgment. Sorry? The, poor judgment. Poor, poor judgment. Yeah, poor judgment, certainly. Uh, poor, poor political judgment in the way that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Julia Gillard was criticised for poor political judgment as if this was, uh, you know, a critical flaw, and obviously in some ways it can be at critical moments. Um, perhaps Turnbull just wasn't as good at politics as he thought he was. I think that's true. I mean, I think that's one of the things that actually comes through the book between the lines that he isn't as good at politics as he as he probably imagined uh, he was or, or could be. Um, so yeah, I, I'd, I'd certainly agree with the poor political judgment. He 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 didn't know. I think the Liberal Party as well as he probably thought he did. Um, he wasn't, as you pointed out, Mark. He wasn't tribal liberal, um, and I, I think that does. Um, show it, it, it shows in I think uh, he's underestimating the kinds of institutional barriers that would exist to him achieving what he wanted to achieve um, and of course the added complication of dealing with the National Party which becomes an increasingly difficult one for him uh, you know uh, via Barnaby Joyce uh, not just over obviously political issues and 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 the, the increasing hold of uh, the coal industry over that party but also over some personal uh, issues that basically brought Barnaby Joyce undone as well. So, um, I mean, the other thing to keep in mind in all this too is that was a government, I think, really um, deeply damaged by the the Section 44 controversies. Um, It made the whole parliament look like a fiasco. But as I learnt when I was living in Britain um, during the expenses scandal over there about a decade ago um, when, when Gordon Brown was Labor Prime Minister, Although the expenses scandal spread across the parties, you know, it wasn't confined to politicians from any particular party, the government of the day was damaged because it it essentially was a constant distraction. It made politicians generally look completely self-serving. You know, they were seen to be fiddling their expenses. And in a sense, that's what happened, I think, with Section 44. It made the parliament look shambolic but it was also a constant distraction for the government and it undermined a sense of a government that actually knew what it was doing. And, and I mean, clearly it, it you know, pr- it created numbers problems for the government uh, in the lower house, in the House of Representatives, but even leaving aside the mathematics, um, it, it, I think, undermined uh, public trust and uh, I think that was quite damaging for Turnbull um, as Prime Minister. It's interesting is that uh, he, it, it was such a distraction, that the, this sort of uh, 
sort of cavalcade of, uh, of of MPs being outed for there being problems with their citizenship, their eligibility to be sitting in the parliament. Turnbull had very little control over that. Indeed, the government had no control over it. Uh, mostly it was being dug up by media. Uh, there were some who eventually outed themselves um, as having problems and there were others who were pursued relentlessly and over whom questions were asked, uh, who, you know, who turned out not to have any problems. But you're right, the sort of doubt uh, about this, the by-elections that it forced, it was a constant kind of distraction um, from any momentum or focus that the government was trying to bring. Interestingly, Turnbull relied on it a bit even in those critical last days when he, he started raising objections about the possibility of Peter Dutton taking over as Prime Minister when there may be doubts about his eligibility to sit in the Parliament. So he wasn't above, <laughs> I guess it's a, that felt like a bit of a courtroom tactic in itself, but he wasn't above um, using it uh, in in extremis, I suppose, uh, as uh, as it all came fell apart uh, back in 2017. Yeah, I mean, there's a sense in which that was a kind of fitting end, wasn't it? it came, because the Section 44 almost came to, to find the, the chaotic nature of his, his prime ministership. Um, yeah, and, I should say 2018, uh, by the way. Yeah, 2018, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and he has some very interesting uh, material in the book about the uh, Governor-General being drawn into that issue, um, mm. which I, I think Peter Hartcher had also written about some while ago. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that was very damaging. I mean, it wasn't the only issue damaging the government, of course. I mean, clearly um, its internal divisions were, were, were critical and the undermining from Abbott, um, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, in a sense Turnbull's very persuasive around the, the role that that kind of, um, you know, uh, campaign being waged by the right against him played in in undermining him. I, I, I think I broadly accept that, that that's a, a persuasive and, and, and probably you know, reasonably factual account, even if you don't accept all the all the details. Um, so, you know, those internal divisions were, were pretty critical. But there was stuff there was stuff that just came out of left field, like the Section Forty Four, that was out of his control. He fumbled at at times. You'll remember that you know he was silly enough to predict a, a high court decision at one point, and he, he yes. acknowledges that in the book that that probably wasn't a, a very wise thing to do. Um, but you know, broadly speaking, he had very little control over that issue. On the question of scarring, we talked about it earlier on, uh, the scarring from his childhood. But the other big scar, of course, was losing the leadership the first time around in 2009. Now, people who listen to this podcast will have heard me talk about this before and I've written about it, but I think it was underestimated the extent to which he was um, abs you know, psychologically damaged by the trauma of of losing the Liberal Party leadership. As you say, it was his great ambition, his his life calling to be Prime Minister as he saw it. He was on the way to doing that. He was leading the, the, uh, the Liberal Party and it was taken from him. And I think this, my theory is that this scarring really affected his ability to be Prime Minister when he did inherit the Prime Ministership from Tony Abbott or take the Prime Ministership from him uh, in 2015. The book does seem to vindicate that analysis because we learn that he did drop into a very steep depression through that period after 2000, the end of 2009 when he lost the leadership. Do you agree, Frank, that it... Um, that it did define him, that he became far too conscious of the party and not as conscious as he should have been 
uh, as a prime minister should be of the nation. So he was governing for his party more than he was governing for his nation. Yeah, I think having been knocked off on that previous occasion um, and the whole issue of of um, climate policy, you know, being the trigger for that, um, I think added another layer of of you know hesitation when he eventually becomes prime minister. I mean, he he understood the potency of that issue as a mobiliser against a moderate um, liberal such as such as uh, you know he sees himself. Um, and yeah, look, some of the most searing passages in the book, um, the most obviously raw and honest, are about. Um, that experience. I mean, he 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 um, he talks. I mean, obviously, there's a, a discussion in the book of the Utegate affair. Um, you know, where he he accepts a leak from a senior treasury official, Godwin Gretsch, which turns out to be a a fraudulent email. And and he, um, you know, before he realizes that, he he makes it the basis of a a, a, a really a, an accusation of corruption against against Kevin Rudd. Um, and you know that clearly. Greatly undermines his his leadership, you know. Before the the whole um, uh, you know um, CPRS issue gets in, um, but you know that he, he talks about his shame, his sense of shame about his dealing with that issue, and and the language is incredibly strong, and it does it does suggest a really deep wound, I think. And it's not just about him losing the leadership; I think it's about his own sense of having failed, his own judgment having failed in allowing himself to be taken in in that kind of way. Um, and, yeah, I think it's entirely plausible that, that that really, you know, is quite defining for his, his, his um, you know, his second go um, as leader and prime minister uh, several years on, that, that you know, that, that is carried as a wound and it, it, may, it makes him very tender, I think, in his dealings with the right of his own party. Um, you know, a sense that they they managed to knock him off once before, that his own actions, his own poor judgment had contributed to that, and he wasn't going to make the same mistake again. But of course, the tragedy of his career is that they get, you know, they do actually get him in the end. He is undermined, and and he loses the prime ministership. They get him anyway, and largely because he's lost the protection of the one thing that was his strongest argument for taking the leadership, and that was public support. Uh, you know, he will say and has said that uh, he was that some internal party polling showed they were close and perhaps even in front uh, on uh, on private polling. Certainly, News Poll and uh, and um, and the Fairfax poll had them certainly within striking distance. So he's perplexed about that. Perhaps. Let's end on on another part of his career, which was actually uh, showed a, a bit more political deftness, and that was um, when he when he did uh, replace Tony Abbott in 2015. I watched that very closely at the time. Of course, I was reporting for Fairfax Media, and what I found fascinating about it was that Abbott could not say that he had been undermined by Turnbull. Turnbull was not leaking to anyone. He was not backgrounding anyone. And my assessment from watching it was that he had brought to uh, his political strategy the experience of working with Kerry Packer and in the corporate sector. And he'd made a kind of an assessment about Tony Abbott's leadership and his whole political operation that it was essentially trading while insolvent. 
in terms of uh, its, any credibility or, or trust that it had out there in the electorate and that it would collapse under the weight of all of those contradictions and that he needed to be standing clear of that when that happened. He wanted to pounce, of course, and take the leadership, but he needed to be not – he needed that uh, – you know, he needed to make sure he wasn't seen as the one who did the pushing to make it topple over. What do you think of that theory? Yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't thought of it in terms of his earlier career, but that that is certainly how he presents uh, Abbott's prime ministership in this book, and and it seems very plausible. I mean, if you you think back to Abbott's prime ministership, that's exactly how it looked to I think probably most members of the public that that it was just a had become uh, certainly by its last year um, a, a series of kind of um, gaffes. Well, it was a laughing uh, stock, really. Exactly, and that he didn't really need to do terribly much to push it over. I mean, the most interesting revelations from Turnbull, uh, if if accurate, about about the, you know the, the 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 fall, the decline and fall, if you like, of of Tony Abbott is the role of Scott Morrison. I mean, he basically presents Morrison as duplicitous, as someone who hoped to grab the leadership himself and was quite prepared to manoeuvre and manipulate. Uh, to do it, and uh, you get a sense uh, in his in, in his account of Morrison's activities in 2014 and 2015 of somewhat a somewhat similar game to that that Morrison eventually played in in 2018. Now, again, you know that may be attributing to Morrison, uh, a, 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 you know, a, a kind of a um, more a, a greater manipulative quality than he has. I don't know, um, but that's certainly how Turnbull presents Morrison's behaviour. Morrison doesn't come out of the book terribly well, on the whole. I mean, he describes him as a safe pair of hands, but you know, he also sees him as extremely opportunistic. Um, in fact, he presents Morrison in much the terms you were describing earlier that some people see Turnbull as actually having virtually no principles that you couldn't trade away if it would get you some political advantage. I mean, he recognises Morrison's conservatism over, you know, certain moral and social issues. But in terms of broader public policy, the kinds of things that routinely dealt, are dealt with by federal government, he sees Morrison as really having almost no fixed positions on anything. And, uh, you know, I've often thought of that, uh, you know, as we observe Morrison today, apparently, you know, adopting policies that, that would have been seemingly unthinkable for the coalition, uh, you know, just a few weeks back. I mean, this does seem like a very... That's true, although to be fair, to be fair, I mean, he's presented with cir yeah. circumstances that uh, are, are, are sui generis. Uh, no one's uh, really dealt with anything like this in the past. So, yeah. uh, yes, it's true that there are policies being adopted that a Liberal Party wouldn't normally do, but... Who's ever seen a pandemic like this? No, that's true. I mean, I'm not suggesting the policies are wrong or they shouldn't have done them, but uh, it may be that he's doing them with fewer backward glances than someone who is more ideologically committed, um, you know, would, would perhaps have, have managed. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting portrayal of, of Morrison. He's not the uh, – I don't think – he certainly doesn't present him as the largest villain in the book. I think that would belong to either uh, Abbott or Corman, uh, you know, in uh, – um, the account that he provides of his own fall, um, but certainly it's it's not a terribly, I think, flattering portrait of Morrison, unless you're particularly attracted, I guess, to supremely pragmatic and manipulative politicians. Well, I suppose that goes to Morrison's abilities, though, as a politician. He, if whatever people think of him, whether they like him or they don't like him, I think most would accept that he is very much a political animal. Uh, he's a you know, a career Liberal Party person, 
uh, having been an official and so forth, he is um, quite different really from Malcolm Turnbull in that regard. You may recall Barry Cassidy's book of several years ago called The Party Thieves and its central thesis was that both Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull were really not of their parties. They were, they were kind of dragooned into or, 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 or you know, um, press ganged in. Obviously they wanted it desperately, but they were given the leadership because they offered the path to victory to their respective parties. And when that public, uh, support was seen to be vulnerable or falling, their protections were stripped away. And, and in both cases, uh, that's why he called it the party thieves. He says in both cases, the parties took back what was theirs from, from these people who'd kind of stolen the agenda. Morrison looks like he's more mainstream, more of the Liberal Party all the way through, a bit like Abbott, uh, different, of course, in, 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 in many respects, but culturally a product of the Liberal Party in a way that Malcolm Turnbull was never quite accepted as being. Yeah, I think, I think that's, um, true. And, and, and I think it's also how, uh, Turnbull presents it in, in the book. I mean, he, he presents Morrison as essentially a professional politician, um, and, and a pretty astute professional politician. Um, uh, and in a sense, he's a kind of foil for, for Turnbull himself, who, of course, wants to present himself as something different. This is a man who's already succeeded in life as uh, a lawyer and businessman, and he's, you know, um, coming to politics late as someone who isn't a professional politician. Again, it comes back to that image I was talking about earlier of the kind of, you know, Italian Renaissance merchant statesman. I think that's much closer to how Turnbull sees himself. Um, and, you know, Morrison effectively acts as, as a kind of contrast. It reminds me a little bit, I have to say, of the way in which Kevin Rudd presented uh, Wayne Swan in his memoirs. So one of the ways in which um, Kevin Rudd, I think, presents his own values and his own preoccupations and interests as a politician is to contrast them with Swan, who is seen as, as essentially just a, a political animal. And uh, uh, th- there was an element of that here. It's not quite the same, but um, I think um, Turnbull uses the figure of Morrison in the text to, to in a sense, to bring out something about himself, Turnbull, as a, as a politician and what matters to him. That's a fascinating insight. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us today, Frank Bongiorno. It's been really terrific. I know you and I love this stuff and could talk about it for the next two hours with no trouble at all, um, but uh, we'll have to leave it there. As, as I say, thanks a lot for uh, for being with us on this Democracy Sausage, and thank you, the listener, for uh, for logging on. Uh, of course, you can uh, give us feedback uh, via Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or on the Facebook group Policy Forum Pod. And uh, we'll see you, talk to you again uh, on early next week, probably Monday afternoon or, or early Tuesday morning with Democracy Sausage. Bye for now. <laughs>